I'm going to warn you ahead of time. I don't have a particular passage for you to turn to. I'm all over the place. So just hold on for the ride. Enjoy the ride. Um, if you want to take note of the references, you can do that. But I, this is going to sound heretical, but I'm advising against trying to keep up with me. You will fail. Okay. And also to honor you with the time, I've got my stopwatch in front of me. It's not going to help me. I want to ask you to join with me in a word of prayer, please. If you would bow your heads, close your eyes, let's look to the Lord. Lord, Heavenly Father, we bring ourselves before you to listen to you minister your word to us. Help us, Lord. Help me, Lord. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Be gracious to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. During the earthly ministry of Jesus, he declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is a claim of exclusivity. Jesus is the truth, the source of the truth, and the only way of salvation. The truth claims of Christianity demand that competing truth claims be rejected. Yet the world in which we live is blinded to this and rises in rebellion to the truth revealed in the Word of God. Those paying attention are aware of forces at work conspiring together against Christianity and its impact in the world. The inerrancy, authority, and sufficiency of Scripture is under attack. The exclusivity of Jesus as the only way of salvation is under attack. The morals and values of Christianity are viewed as evil, and oppressive. Critical theory has given rise to movements that stand against the Christian worldview. Examples of this include, but are not limited to, the feminist movement, the LGBTQ movement, and the official version of the Black Lives Matter movement. These movements run counter to traditional marriage, biblical masculinity and femininity, pro-life, and many of the values that we as Christians embrace. The traditional Christian worldview is viewed as an oppressive movement demanding to be overthrown. When you read through much of the literature, it is clear that we who embrace a God-exalting, gospel-centered, Bible-based approach to living, we are viewed increasingly as 
the enemy for an excellent treatment of what I am talking about, and especially in connection to critical theory, I encourage you strongly, listen to Neil Shenvey's message. Neil Shenvey's message entitled, Are Social Justice, Critical Theory, and Christianity Compatible? Brothers and sisters, I am no prophet, but it requires little imagination to believe that the seeds for persecution which have been planted and are sprouting may very well come into fruition, and the fruit is not good. With these thoughts in mind, I will address a topic that I believe is relevant for the church today. It is a topic that some churches jettison for a prosperity gospel that is leading thousands to hell. It is a topic that faithful churches need reminding of if persecution and suffering for the sake of righteousness become the norm. I do not know what the future has in store, but there is writing on the wall that points to the possibility of persecution. And I want us to be ready should such a time come. God help us. And so our message today is entitled, A Biblical Theology of Suffering. A Biblical Theology of Suffering. We will consider 10 truths that shape our biblical theology of suffering, and prepare us for a day of suffering. Truth number one, suffering is real and it comes in many forms. Suffering is real and it comes in many forms. We are not immune to suffering and everyone with a pulse knows this. We see this in the events of our day and our own lives bear this out. If you are alive, you will suffer at some level. Non-believers point to suffering as their reason to reject belief in God. If there is a God, they ask, then why does he allow evil? Why is there suffering in this world? In asking such questions, they declare that things are not the way that they should be. And you know what? They are right. When God finished creation, including the first marriage between a man and a woman, God proclaimed, it is very good. It was the way it should be. But something went terribly wrong. Adam and Eve were given a choice, and on their own volition, they disobeyed God. In eating the forbidden fruit, sin, suffering, and death entered this world. The sin and suffering we see in this fallen world reveal God's trustworthiness, his faithfulness. He is true to his word, and he is to be believed. God had declared that Adam was free to eat from any tree in the garden, but he was not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God warned Adam that the day he eats from that tree, that he would surely die. That is exactly what happened. When Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, death entered the world. They died spiritually and years later died physically. 
Adam and Eve should have trusted the Lord. They should have taken him at his word. Their failure serves as reason for suffering in this fallen world. We respond, therefore, to the objection that things are not the way they should be with agreement. We agree. And the reason we give for things not being what they should be is the fall. But we have hope. We have hope. And our hope is that for those in Christ, a day will come when sin and suffering will come to an end. It will cease. But that day is yet in the future. In the meantime, we must keep the following truths in mind. Truth number two, the righteous are not immune to suffering. The righteous are not immune to suffering. Preachers of the prosperity gospel will tell you God wants you healthy and wealthy. If you are not prospering, they say, it is because you lack faith. For an excellent treatment regarding the danger of prosperity teaching, I encourage you, please, watch the documentary, American Gospel, Christ Alone. That will be time well worth spent. The American Gospel, Christ Alone. I repeat, the Bible teaches that the righteous are not immune to suffering. Abel was a righteous man. He suffered. Jesus refers to the blood of righteous Abel. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 11.4 describes Abel as righteous by virtue of offering sacrifices to God in faith. Abel was Adam and Eve's second-born son who was murdered by his jealous and hateful brother. The righteous are not immune to suffering. Job is another Old Testament example of a righteous man who suffered. Job chapter 1 verse 1 introduces Job with the following description. Blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Job was blessed with seven sons, three daughters, and material wealth. He prospered materially. Chapter 1 verse 3 declares Job was the greatest of all the men in the East. In chapter 1, verse 8, we read Satan's first dialogue with the Lord. The Lord directs Satan's attention to Job, declaring, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Satan accuses Job and is granted permission to attack Job's livestock, servants, and children. Job's testing was severe. Yet Job responds to his suffering with these words. Job chapter 1 verse 21 Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
And verse 22 tells us through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Despite Job's righteousness, he suffered. And then Satan engages the Lord in a second dialogue regarding Job. In Job 2.3, we read, The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, blameless and upright man, fearing God, turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity. Although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Satan answered the Lord and he said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth thy hand now, touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse thee to thy face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. God permits Satan to inflict Job with severe physical pain. He did not have the coronavirus, but he was left with a body buried in boils. And to make matters worse, those who should have encouraged Job ministered condemning counsel the reason you suffer is because there is sin in your life do right and all will be well their faulty theology could have been disastrous to job but job had enough soundness to his thinking that empowered his ability to persevere for job Suffering was not the result of personal sin in his life. And so we observe that the righteous are not immune to suffering. And need I tell you that the Lord Jesus himself serves as the ultimate example, the ultimate proof that the righteous are not immune to suffering. Well, let us move to truth three. Number three, Jesus promises that those who follow him will suffer. Jesus promises that those who follow him, they will suffer. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The implication here is that his people would have enemies. They would be persecuted. We are told to love and to pray for those who persecute us. Mark 10, 29, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and the gospel's sake, but that he shall receive, and part of what he says here is, persecutions. Following Christ is linked to persecution. John 15, 20, Jesus says, Remember, the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And Jesus instructs us through the writers of the epistles. Second Timothy 3.12 we read, And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 Peter 5.8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking 
someone to devour. It is clear because of the fall and through the teachings of Christ and the early church that we should anticipate suffering. Now granted, we here in the United States have been blessed for decade after decade after decade. But as I have indicated before, there is no guarantee that such blessings will continue forever. Well, let us turn to truth four for our encouragement, especially as we think through suffering for the sake of righteousness. Suffering is useful for accomplishing God's purposes. Suffering is useful for accomplishing God's purposes. Joseph is a classic example of God allowing suffering for the sake of a greater good. His brothers had it in mind to kill him, but ended up throwing him into a well and then later selling him into slavery. He was accused by Potiphar's wife of making sport of her, and he was thrown into prison. But the Lord was with Joseph. He ascended to the right hand of Pharaoh from where he would be instrumental in saving the lives of his brothers who betrayed him. The events in Joseph's life culminate in some astonishing things that he said to his brothers. Listen to what he says in Genesis 50, 19 through 20. Am I in God's place? Am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to preserve many people alive. Joseph's words reveal much about the man. He had a firm grasp on the sovereignty of God, and he did not cop an attitude when difficulty came his way. He understood that the Lord was to be exalted regardless of what he allowed to happen. Joseph understood that God uses trials for good. He had no idea of the good that the Lord was up to when he was thrown into the well. He could not have looked into the future to see the good when accused of making sport of a man's wife. He was betrayed, abandoned, isolated, falsely accused, unjustly treated. He was sinned against. He did not retaliate. He trusted God and he remained faithful to God. God had his back. At the end of the day, Joseph responded to his brothers with loving words. He directed them to the one who is greater than he. He spoke of the sovereignty and the goodness of God. God accomplished the good of preserving Israel through Joseph's faithfulness. I would also add that the evil acts of Joseph's brothers were used by the Lord to accomplish good, his good purposes. And God accomplished a good work in Joseph as well, which brings us to truth number five. Suffering is useful for conforming us into the likeness of Christ. 
Suffering is useful for the purpose of conforming us into the image and the likeness of Christ. Through sufferings, we can become more like Christ. Romans 8, 28 to 29, a classic passage. We all know it. This is where Paul says, we know. We know that God causes all things, all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed into the image of his son. There is the goal. There is the purpose. There is what ought to make us happy in the midst of our sufferings, that he will use it to conform us into the image of his son. Suffering falls under the umbrella of all things that God actively causes to work together for the good of all those who love God. His goal is our growth. We become conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. God uses our suffering for our good. This, this should encourage us as we anticipate the possibility of future suffering. There are forces at work, again, contemporary critical theory, social Marxism that put us at odds with the culture surrounding us. We live in a potentially perilous time. We do not know what the future has in store, but we as Christ followers are increasingly viewed as the oppressor who stand in opposition to the worldly values of this society. There is literature out there embraced by our culture and identifying conservative Christians as the enemy. And we are staring opposition in the face and we must brace ourselves to suffer for the sake of righteousness. God help us. But as we do, we who are the elect, we can rest assured that all things work together for the good. We will be conformed into Christ's likeness. And so let us now turn to truth number six. Number six, suffering is useful for fostering gratitude in our hearts. Foster, uh, suffering is useful for fostering gratitude in our hearts. Your suffering should be a source of joy in your life. We see this through Paul in his prison epistles. Paul is an example to us of joyful suffering. Colossians 1.24, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Paul is in prison for the sake of the gospel, and he is rejoicing. His joy is rooted in his positive impact on other believers. Paul's imprisonment is a catalyst for the advancement of the gospel. In Philippians 1-2, Paul says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out 
for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ, he's suffering for the sake of righteousness, he's suffering for Christ, my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Earlier in this epistle, Paul expresses joy. Later, he gives the command to rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. Imprisonment did not rob Paul of his joy. You look at your imprisonment, and you look at your Lord, and in your Lord, you have everything in the world to be grateful for. First Peter 4.13 tells us, but to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, when he is revealed in glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. There is a correlation between suffering for the sake of righteousness and joyfully enduring and the amount of joy that we might experience in the future when he returns. Our hearts will explode as a result of having suffered for righteousness sake. When we come into his presence, there will be joy inexpressible, full of glory. Our hearts will explode in joy. That's part of the reward for our suffering. Suffering for righteousness is to be viewed as sharing in the sufferings of Christ and it serves as an occasion for joy. Christ suffered and when we suffer for Christ, it is appropriate to keep on rejoicing. Suffering for the sake of Christ enables us, it empowers us, uh, gives us the ability to identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. When we consider our own suffering against the backdrop of Christ's suffering, we are better positioned to appreciate all of what he did for us. Christ, who never thought, spoke, or behaved in an evil way, suffered great injustice. He was executed for crimes that he did not commit. And when we ourselves suffer for righteousness, when we suffer as Christ followers, we identify with the Lord. We get to better understand what our Lord went through. Such an understanding facilitates our rejoicing in the Lord and can foster gratitude in our hearts for the Lord. We do well also to consider the example of Christ himself. On his journey to the cross, he suffered. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12, 1 to 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, the writer is referring to those who have gone on before us and who have themselves suffered. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, 
pay attention to what is said about Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. As Jesus was led to the cross, we're told there was a joy set before him. What was that joy? Was dying his source of joy? I submit the joy Jesus had in mind was the joy made possible only through his own suffering, only through his own crucifixion, only through him on the cross taking upon himself all of the wrath that we deserve for our sins against the holy God. His joy was made possible through his death. And friends, there are joys in this life as well as the life to come that are possible only through suffering. For Jesus, the joy set before him was the joy made possible only through his suffering on the cross. His joy was knowing that through his atoning sacrifice, we would be saved. His joy was knowing that a day awaits when he will present his beautiful and unblemished bride to the Father. His joy was knowing that through his death, we who were far off would be brought near, that we would be brought into a relationship with Almighty God, that our sins would be atoned for, that we would be forgiven, and that we would have access to Almighty God, to his throne of grace, and that we would go to heaven when we died, and that we would spend all of eternity future with God in glory, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. We can learn from the example of Jesus. Uh, we can face our own suffering knowing that God has good in store through and as a result of our suffering. And since this is true, we can, by the grace of God, face suffering with a deep and abiding sense of joy. I am not saying that there is no fear involved, but we who are in Christ have overcome and we can through him overcome. And we hear the words of Christ for countless times. He, God himself says, fear not, fear not. We need not fear the suffering. If we fear anything, we should fear our own failure to honor the Lord should a season of suffering come our way. We should fear falling into what I call the Peter syndrome. I do not know the man. I do not know that pastor. I do not know that elder. I do not know that brother or sister in Christ. To be honest, in my weaker moments, this is what I fear but I remind myself that when the time of suffering should come, the Lord will at that time give me the grace I need to endure it. He will not give me the grace ahead of time. 
he will give me the grace on time. The indwelling spirit is praying and he will empower me. And Christ sits on his throne as my advocate and he is praying for me. He is praying for you and his prayers will be answered in the affirmative. By faith, I know, we know that belonging to Christ, those who belong to Christ will persevere and prevail. This was Paul's concern in Philippians 1, 19 to 21. Listen to what he says. I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance. The this that he is referring to is being in prison for the sake of righteousness. Okay, uh, he's in prison. He does not know what awaits him. He is thinking that perhaps he is going to have his head chopped off, be executed. Okay, and he's got this pressing against him and he's thinking to himself and he's wondering and he's praying and he, and he says, I know this shall turn out for my deliverance and the deliverance he has in mind. I do not believe it is deliverance from prison. It is not deliverance from execution, but deliverance from spiritual failure deliverance from bringing reproach and shame on the name of Jesus. He says, this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers. He believes he is strengthened through the prayers of the saints and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He believes that God, the Spirit who indwells him, will empower him to be victorious. He says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything. That was his fear that I might do something to bring shame upon my Lord. That was his concern. That in the face of being executed, I will fail my Lord. But that with all boldness, Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body whether I live or whether I die. For to me to live is Christ. I'm sorry. And to die it is gain Lord, help us. Paul's concern was that Christ be exalted. He concluded Christ would be exalted, and such a thought encouraged his soul. Brothers and sisters, if we were to suffer for the sake of Christ, if we were to experience persecution, if we were called to die for Christ, we can be comforted and even rejoice at the thought that through the prayers of the saints and the provision of the Spirit, that we would be strengthened enough to die with our spiritual boots on. He who began the work will complete it. We can embrace suffering as sharing in the sufferings of Christ, and we can be joyful and thankful if and when the day should come. Let us now turn to truth number seven. Number seven, responding to suffering in a gospel manner is pleasing to God. Responding to suffering in a gospel manner is pleasing to God. 
let us begin here with a consideration of God's attitude towards his son regarding his suffering on the cross. 1 Corinthians 1.21 says that God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. God was well pleased. What pleased God? What pleased God was that through the crucifixion of his son, sinners would be saved. We see a parallel thought expressed in Isaiah 53, 10 through 11. We read, The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. The Lord was pleased to crush his son because through his death, many would be justified. Do you realize that God was pleased through the crucifixion of his son to save your soul? Let that sink in. The good news that Jesus sacrificed his life on a cross for our salvation brought pleasure to God. Christ suffered for the good of your soul, for the glory of God. It follows when we respond to suffering in a gospel manner that God is pleased. Listen to what Peter has to say in 1 Peter 2, 19 to 20. For this finds favor... This finds favor. What finds favor, Peter? If for the sake of conscience toward God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure that with patience? But if when you do what is right and you suffer for it, you patiently endure, this finds favor with God. Peter is writing about the man who chooses for the sake of conscience to bear up under sorrow when suffering unjustly. He is a man who has done nothing wrong, yet he's being persecuted for his commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. He agrees with God's standard of right and wrong. He affirms the truth of the gospel, and he lives for the glory of Christ. And as a result, he suffers, but he patiently endures. He is not rising up in rebellion against the powers that be, no. His example is Christ and he models his life after his Lord. He suffers unjust persecution and he patiently endures to the glory of God. And how does the Lord respond? What does God think? Peter tells us at the beginning of the verse and at the end of the verse, this finds favor with God. This finds favor with God. I submit that by responding to suffering in a gospel manner, you will bring pleasure to and find favor with God. Consider what James declares in James 5, 1 to 9. He first addresses the wealthy land-owning oppressors. Now follow with me. James 5.1, come now, you rich. 
Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. These are words of judgment. It is in the last days that you have stored up uh, your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers, the workers who mowed your field and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your heart in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man, he does not resist you. So he addresses the wealthy, landowning, oppressive people. And there's words of condemnation that come their way through what James has to say. And James now turns to the oppressed laborers, to the workers, and he says to them, now listen to the counsel he gives to them who are being unfairly treated unjustly treated. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. When suffering, we must look to Christ. We must see him hanging on the tree in agony and blood. We must behold his lifeless body laid to rest in a tomb. We must, with eyes of faith, view his resurrected and ascended body. We must seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And we must hold on to the hope that he will return and justice will prevail and all oppression shall cease. James exhorts his readers to respond to their suffering in a gospel manner. Be patient, therefore, therefore, in view of the fact that the rich oppressors away the slaughter, the Lord will judge. How long must they be patient, James declares, until the coming of the Lord. And James also says, do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. You see, James knows that the situation is ripe for complaining. Oppressed believers may become angry at other oppressed believers who choose to suffer in a gospel manner, who choose to patiently endure, and those who choose to patiently endure may lose their patience with those struggling and even refusing to patiently endure. And James warns God's people about complaining against one another in the midst of the situation that they find themselves in. And perhaps there is application here in James regarding the relationship between the wealthy and the poor believers. Suppose a landowner comes to faith and he has a worker who is a believer. In such a situation, James would want them to preserve the unity and the spirit and the bond of peace. He would want their relationship to honor the Lord. He would want them to avoid complaining against one another. 
James has already warned the oppressor of God's judgment earlier in the passage in the chapter. He also warns the oppressed that the judge is standing right at the door. He knows, he sees, he beholds. Don't get so fixated on the fact that you're being oppressed. Realize that he's going to hold you accountable for your attitude and your actions against the backdrop of the oppression. The judge is standing right at the door. That can be a source of encouragement, but it's, a, it's something to be fearful of as well. Mark this. Whenever God's people suffer unjustly and fail to respond in a gospel manner, they should fear. However, they do well also to keep in mind that responding to suffering in a gospel manner, that is pleasing to God. Well, let us consider truth number eight. Truth number eight. Responding to suffering in the gospel manner results in witnessing opportunity. 1 Thessalonians 1.6, Paul writes about how his readers had received the word in much tribulation and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. In 1.7-8, Paul describes how the Thessalonians became an example to all of the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, and how as a result, the word of the Lord has sounded forth. And this illustrates the fact that God opens doors of witnessing opportunity when we respond to suffering in a gospel manner. When we back up in the history of the Thessalonians, the Thessalonian church, we learn that the one who brought to them the gospel suffered as well. The apostle Paul brought this fact to their attention in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 2, where he says, you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. The Thessalonians observed in Paul how he responded to suffering in a gospel manner, and they were willing themselves to do the same. Such suffering, rather than hinder, served to advance the spread of the gospel. Another great example of this is the church's first martyr. We read about Stephen in Acts chapter 6. He is described as a godly man, full of wisdom, full of the Spirit. Fruit of God's Spirit was manifested in Stephen, and he evidently possessed great leadership skills along with a love for proclaiming the gospel. And to try to keep it short, the bottom line is this. He's persecuted, right? And then he is dragged to the court. He responds by preaching the gospel. And then they drag him out of the city and they stone him. They start throwing stones at him. He's being persecuted for the sake of the gospel. And while being persecuted, there he is. He is praying. The last words that come out of Stephen's mouth is, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He prays for his enemies. And then what happens? It tells us that the church is ravaged. The church scattered. There was an intense persecution. The scripture also tells us that there was a man, Saul, who was there giving hearty agreement to what was going on. And so the church at Jerusalem is scattered. And as they go about scattering, what is the first thing that Luke says they were doing as they were scattered? They went about preaching the word of God. So therein is the proper response. 
when you are on the receiving end of attack, when the mob comes against you to destroy you, you respond with words of prayer. You respond as you are being scattered by proclaiming Christ. You don't shy back, but you boldly proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. And what happens? People were saved. On the other side of, and I would submit to you even because of, persecution. Stephen preached. He was persecuted. Stephen prayed. Stephen died. The church then is persecuted. The church scatters. The church went about preaching the word, and Stephen's prayer would be answered. As the scattered believers preached, souls were converted, but perhaps the most powerful answer to Stephen's prayer the day he died would be the eventual conversion of Saul of Tarsus. These are but a few examples of how a gospel response to suffering results in witnessing opportunity and the salvation of souls. Brothers, sisters, in these difficult days and as we anticipate possible persecution, it is good for us to know that responding to suffering in a gospel manner may result in the salvation of another person. Well, let us move on to truth number nine. Suffering is temporary. Suffering is temporary. I'm going to read a pretty long section here from 2 Corinthians, beginning in chapter 4, verse 6. But bear with me. This is a wonderful passage. For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us but life in you, but having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore also we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus, and he will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day, verse 17, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, far beyond anything that this fallen world can provide. It is within the broader discussion of suffering for the sake of the gospel that Paul declares our affliction is momentary and light. In describing affliction as momentary, Paul is saying it will end. 
it will end. He does not say when it will end. Such afflictions may result in or end with physical death. But is that not a long time? On the human side of the equation, it is a long time. But Paul lives with eternity in sight. Against the backdrop of eternity, all affliction is momentary. The path of wisdom is to view affliction from the standpoint of eternity. And in describing affliction as light, Paul is indicating it could be worse. It could be much worse. Perhaps he has eternity in mind again. But what he has in mind is judgment and eternal damnation. We who are in Christ may suffer affliction, this side of glory. But such affliction is nothing compared to the suffering of the unsaved when they are cast into the eternal lake of fire. Brothers and sisters, if and when the time comes for persecution to come, we must keep eternity in mind. We must look to the future. We must set our mind on things above, set our heart on the Lord Jesus Christ raised and seated at the right hand of the Father. We must remember that he is coming again someday. We have every reason in this fallen world to have hope, to have confidence, to have courage, and to have faith. Well, let us turn to truth 10. Suffering ultimately gives way to eternal reward. Suffering ultimately gives way to eternal reward. Your suffering will be worth it. Should the Lord call you into suffering for the sake of Christ, it will be worth it when you transition into glory and behold the Lord Jesus face to face. The Bible makes reference to the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, this is to be distinguished from the great white throne judgment. The judgment seat of Christ is not a place and time when the Lord will mete out punishment for sins committed by the child of God. Rather, it's a place where rewards will be given or lost depending on how a believer has lived his life this side of glory for the Lord. The judgment seat of Christ ought to motivate us while on the earth to max out in kingdom living for the glory of God. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3.11 through 15 declares, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet as though through fire. I don't know about you. I would not mind receiving heavenly reward from the Lord. I would not mind standing before him on that day and hearing him say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. 
This passage here infers we will be rewarded for the quality of how we lived our life and the impact we had on others. We have the hope of reward. And we will be rewarded for how we stewarded the sufferings that the Lord has brought our way. Hear what Paul says to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 9 to 10. Therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to the Lord. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Here Paul tells us our ambition must be to please the Lord, to honor him. Our motivation is that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Friends, remember that the day is coming when you will stand before the Lord. You will see him face to face. You will behold your Savior, the Lamb slain for your sins. Give Give your all for the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom. And if the Lord wills, embrace suffering for the sake of righteousness as an opportunity to honor the Lord. And let your motto always be, may the lamb slain receive the reward for his suffering. And as a result, you yourself can anticipate heavenly reward. So we have considered the biblical theology of suffering. Ten truths that should give shape to our biblical theology of suffering and prepare us for a day of suffering. Quickly, number one, suffering is real and it comes in many forms. Although in particular, I directed our attention to suffering for righteousness sake. Number two, the righteous are not immune to suffering. Three, Jesus promises that those who follow him will suffer. Four, suffering is useful for accomplishing God's purposes. Five, suffering is useful for conforming us into the image of Christ, into the likeness of, of Christ. Six, suffering is useful for fostering gratitude in our hearts. Seven, responding to suffering in a gospel manner is pleasing to God. Eight, responding to suffering in a gospel manner results in witnessing opportunity. Nine, suffering is temporary. And ten, suffering ultimately gives way to eternal reward. Brothers and sisters, as we embrace a biblical theology of suffering, we are doing nothing new. There are those who have blazed the trail ahead of us. We have considered some of those, a small fraction of those examples, today. I end with 1 Peter 2.21 and following. Once again, this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and you suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God for you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, 
who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned on the basis of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, on the basis of him receiving upon himself all of the punishment that you deserve for your sin, on the basis of the Holy Spirit being at work, drawing you to God, to where you would embrace the irresistible grace of God and love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and might. You were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. God, help us. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we sang the words earlier today. Lord, you are more beautiful than silver, more costly than gold, more precious. Lord, you are the precious one, the beautiful one. Lord, apart from you, we are ugly. But because of you, Lord, wonder of wonders, we have been made beautiful in Christ. To you alone be glory. And Lord, we pray, we pray, Lord, that you would see fit to bring about an awakening in this nation. We stand together before your throne of grace, Jesus, and we pray. We pray for mercy. We pray, Lord, that you would visit us in compassion and kindness as a nation. We pray, Lord, that where there is sin, there would be repentance and brokenness and weeping and mourning and wailing. We pray, Lord, that there would be a repentance that sweeps through our hearts let it begin in me, let it begin in the elders, let it begin in this church, Lord, let it begin in this city, in this nation, Lord. Have mercy on us, Lord, forgive us for the many ways that we have sinned against you, Lord. Let us all recognize, Lord, the sin that we ourselves are guilty of, and let us be careful to repent where repentance is needed, of our own sins committed against you and even against others, Lord. Help us to be found faithful. But Lord, should the day come and should persecution come knocking at our door, if we should be persecuted for the sake of Christ, Lord, let us stand firm. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.